Greetings, fellow travelers, vagrants, explorers, etc., and welcome to episode 6 of the Retro Wildlands. My name is Nomad, and this is my gaming podcast where I like to share my thoughts and experiences with a retro game I used to play back when I was younger, or maybe a modern game I've played recently. If this is your very first visit to the Retro Wildlands, welcome, and I hope you enjoy hanging out with us by the fire, listening to an old man like myself talk about video games. If you've been here before, welcome back. It's great to hang out again. So grab a seat and relax, my friends. Let's get into it. So on today's episode, we find ourselves back to the Super Nintendo to check out another game that is near and dear to my heart and soul. A game that was quite revolutionary at the time, but I'm not quite sure how it holds up today. But still, doesn't change the fact that it's a pretty good game and one that I'll almost always pick up if I have about a half hour or so to kill. And we're of course talking about Star Fox, an on-rails space-age shooter where you control Fox McCloud and lead your crew to do battle with the evil Andros and try your best to look cool while you do it. And when I say look cool, I don't just mean fancy flying and crazy maneuvers. Back in 1993 when this game was launched in North America, it really did look cool for the time. Star Fox was the first Super Nintendo game to utilize Nintendo's Super FX graphics chip. Its primary purpose was to render 3D polygonal shapes, giving objects a 3D-looking effect. It also enhanced other graphics as well, and when Star Fox launched, there was no Super Nintendo game quite like it graphically. It looks pretty dated today when you look at it now, but at the time, it was pretty awe-inspiring, especially to my 9-year-old eyeballs. The colors were bright, the graphics were sick, and the game had you flying a pretty badass-looking space fighter. What was there not to love? When we were all growing up, I'm sure we all had that one thing we wanted to be when we grew up. You've got your typical astronaut, race car driver type hopes and dreams, you know, things like that. My best friend, I remember, wanted to be a paleontologist at one point for his love for dinosaurs, you know, things like that. And my stepdaughter, she wants to be a veterinarian, although that's subject to change without notice. And same with my stepson, right now he wants to be an engineer for NASA. Now what did I want to be when I grew up? I wanted to be a fighter pilot, and that's all thanks to a little 1986 movie that you may have heard of. Top Gun. To say I was obsessed with this movie growing up would be putting it lightly. I loved all the scenes that had the planes dogfighting and zipping across the screen. Star Fox isn't anything like that, of course, but when I was growing up, I didn't really have access to too many games where I could fly a plane or anything like that. I did play Top Gun on the original Nintendo, but it had its limits and I was not good at that game at all. Star Fox, on the other hand, I was a downright ace pilot, and I knew if I kept practicing, I would be worthy to fly with the greats, like Maverick and Goose and Iceman. I've played Star Fox here and there in the last few years since getting a hold of my Super Nintendo Classic, but it wasn't until recently I put some time into it again. I wanted to talk about this one since I grew up with it, but I was also curious to see if this game held up at all today. And boy, playing this game as a full-grown adult has made me see some things my younger self most likely would not have noticed. Or noticed, but just didn't give a shit about. Is that a good thing or a bad thing, though? We'll get into all that here in a little bit, though. Before that, I like to give everyone a peek behind the curtain a little bit here in the Retro Wildlands so you can kind of get a glimpse of what it is I'm working on, 
what's potentially coming up down the road with regards to future episodes, and what games I'm playing right now. If none of this interests you and you just want to skip ahead to the Star Fox conversation, no worries, you could skip ahead about 5, maybe 10 minutes, and you should hit that conversation. But please stick around, I just made the first round of s'mores, and you'll get dibs. So I've pretty much settled into a routine when it comes to deciding on an episode of the podcast. We're playing the game a bit to refamiliarize myself with it, writing out a script, editing said script, recording the show, editing the audio, and then posting the show. The more I do this, the slightly easier it's becoming. I'm liking the read-from-a-script approach and still going off-script at times. I really do like writing as a whole, and one idea I did have before launching this podcast was I, I wanted to write out retro video game reviews and post them online. Even though I wanted to become a fighter pilot when I was little, writing for a video game magazine was something that interested me. Obviously not enough back then because of all the work it entailed, and I was a little lazy piece of shit, but thinking about it now, it still entices me. I may repurpose my scripts into written reviews or something later down the road, who knows. I'm just happy I haven't missed posting an episode every Thursday yet, that's probably my biggest accomplishment at that point. A huge shout out to my wife with regards to that. I found myself getting up earlier some mornings, and I've shut myself in my home office to work on things for the podcast in the evening sometimes too. It's a time sink, but I'm having a blast with it, and every week seeing that we have one more episode in the bank is really awesome. Creating something and watching it grow is an amazing feeling, even if no one listens to this podcast, which I think a few of you have, so sweet. Still, it's really fun and I'm having a blast. I have a vision of what I want this project to be somewhere down the road, and I'm already starting to set some goals. Download numbers are slowly rising each week. It is nothing substantial, so I am not getting ahead of myself at all, but it's still pretty cool seeing just one more person listening to the show over the week before. I have zero expectations of what this show is really going to be, but even still, I got plans. We'll see what happens. So if you're a returning Wildlander, consider sharing the podcast with a friend. I'm sure the games I've covered up to this point don't appeal to everyone, but get a hold of me and let me know what you might want to have covered on the podcast, and I'll definitely consider it at this point. How do you do that, you may be wondering to yourself? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Right now, the best way to engage with the podcast is on social media. I created a Facebook page for the podcast, and about 29 people think it's worth following, so huge shout-out to all of you folks if you're listening to the show. You can also find the Retro Wildlands on Instagram and Twitter, at Retro Wildlands. I've been following other people on the Twitter and the Gram to kind of get a feel for how they interact with others and what they post, so I'm hoping to get more stuff out there in the coming days. I was never a big social media user these past few years, I just didn't really want to put myself out there, and all people really seemed to do on social media was just bitch and moan about things. It was just way too much, and I was getting tired of it. But looking at what social media can be, I'm trying to re-engage with people. Not just to promote the podcast, but to connect with people and share similar passions. Ever since COVID forced us to isolate, I feel like most of us just shrink deeper into our shells. I know I did for a little while. Some people, on the other hand, became more outspoken on social media, but more so in some negative ways as isolation really took its toll. So I'm trying to relearn how to utilize social media for more than a negative sounding board and turn it into something that brings value to myself and value to others. And to use it as a way to shamelessly show the world that my dogs are the best dogs ever and not feel bad about it. 
So if you're interested in any of that, please check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and the Instagram. And speaking of social media, you may have seen that I posted a video of my beautiful PlayStation Vita playing the intro to Final Fantasy VII. When I first started the Retro Wildlands podcast, I knew this game would be featured at some point. I know all you diehard Final Fantasy fans have your favorites for various reasons, but Final Fantasy VII is mine, and you can't convince me any of the others are better than it. You just can't. When I mentioned that I was setting some goals for the podcast, getting an episode of Final Fantasy VII recorded was one of them. I want to replay the game and have it fresh in my mind before sitting down with it. I don't know when that'll be, but it's definitely on the radar. Playing it on the go on my Vita feels great, and it's going to be awesome just grinding out battles while I chill on my couch with my wife while we watch some serial killer documentaries, because that is a thing we do. Last thing to mention, we had someone post on the Retro Wildlands Facebook group mention Final Fantasy VII, Twisted Metal, and Spider-Man and Venom Maximum Carnage would be good games to cover on the podcast. I completely forgot about Twisted Metal and Maximum Carnage. I played them both and really loved playing Twisted Metal when I was younger, specifically. I don't do very much vehicular combat anymore, but that Twisted Metal got it right. I'm definitely interested in revisiting that gem. And I did play Maximum Carnage, but I don't remember much about it. I do know I liked it a lot, so it's also on the list. I love Spider-Man as a character, and I've decided I don't have enough superhero games on my gaming resume. So maybe down the road, we'll revisit this one. Thank you to everyone who's made suggestions up to this point. I'm really eager to jump into those games that you love and share some stories with you down the road on what my experiences were with them. And with that, let's jump into this week's episode and talk some Star Fox. Released on March 26th, 1993, when I was 9 or 10 years old, this one-of-a-kind 3D polygonal beauty set the stage for what graphics could be back in the day. Let's join Fox McCloud, Falco Lombardi, Peppy Hare, and the insufferable Slippy Toad as we launch a counterattack against Andros, a madman bent on destruction. So strap into your R-Wing, pick up a twin blaster power-up, and stock up on your Nova Bombs. We have incoming enemy fighters, so prepare to launch. Yeah. What you just heard was the opening to Star Fox when you and your squad are racing down the launch tube and heading straight into the impending danger that is Andross's enemy fleet, which has just descended upon the planet Corneria. It's a fantastic opening to this game. Not only does it showcase the, for the time, amazing graphics, but that alarm klaxon, or whatever you want to call it, gets my adrenaline rushing every time. Every time I started a new game, I always remembered myself sitting up just a little straighter 
and gripping my controller just a little bit tighter to prepare for the impending battle. When the scene changed and the ships flew out of the hangar, you knew it was go time. The music that plays for the entire stage that starts when you launch out of the hangar just solidifies this moment in time for me. I was in. Ready to fight and excited to see where the journey was going to take me this time. So before I start drowning uncontrollably in my nostalgic memories, let's dial our retros back a bit. What is this game? Star Fox is what's called an arcadey, on-rails shooter, where you control an R-Wing, a space-aged fighter jet of sorts. The on-rail shooter part means that your R-Wing is always moving forward, like you're on train rails. You can move your ship all over the screen, though. You can go up, down, left, right, but you're always propelling forward. The enemies you fight are typically coming straight at you or are already in front of you. You have to maneuver your ship in front of them to shoot them down with your laser cannon that fires almost as fast as you can hit the fire button on your controller. Even though you're always moving forward, you have boosters that can propel you forward at incredible speeds for a few seconds, and you also have your ship's retros, or the brakes, that you can hit to slow you down considerably for a few seconds as well. Now really, the object of the game is to get from the beginning of the stage to the end of the stage, then move on to the next stage until you reach the end of the game. Each stage has different enemies that are trying to shoot you down and other environmental obstacles you'll need to avoid so you don't crash your R-Wing. At the end of each stage is a boss of some kind that's leading the enemy forces in that stage, and you have to find a way to defeat it before you can progress. It's a simple enough concept, and the game comes equipped with three different routes that you can use to take it to the end. One's pretty easy, one offers a solid challenge, and one is pretty brutal. At least it was brutal for me because I suck at games sometimes. <laughs> there are hidden shortcuts along the way, power-ups to be grabbed, and teammates to babysit. So let's unpack this puppy a little bit and see what makes up this game while I slather on some childhood memories for dramatic effect. First thing I want to do really quick is pop the hood on this game and check out the Super FX microchip the game uses. Now to my knowledge, it was the first Super Nintendo game to use the Super FX chip, and it's the main reason the game looks like it does. I don't really want this to be that sort of a podcast that dives into the granular details of history behind a game, or its development, or anything like that, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time here. I'm sure there are plenty of other podcasts or YouTube videos out there that can give you all you electronics nerds all you'd ever want regarding the Super FX chip better than I ever could. And by the way, I say electronics nerd with the utmost love and respect. So I'm not super on the up and up when it comes to all the graphical terms when it comes to video games, so I'll do my best just to keep this short and sweet. The biggest thing the Super FX chip does is it creates 3D polygons on screen. This gives what you're looking at more of a realistic 3D image, whereas a 2D image is flat. In Star Fox, the R-Wing you fly, the enemies you face, and the environments are primarily rendered in 3D, and the 2D images that are used look very polished and clean. So clean that you can eat your food off of it. I'm talking about some explosions you see, asteroids you come across, and even your laser blasts. It was a one-of-a-kind visual experience for the time. Kids today will never get to experience how awesome this was. When I first played this game when I was little, 
I felt like this game belonged to my stepdad at some point. I know I lost access to it when he split, but I picked it up later down the road again, and I was able to hang on to it for a little while after that. I can't remember if I ever watched him play it or not, but I vaguely remember booting the game up for the first time on my own, and it's an experience I will never forget. I didn't play a ton of games when I was younger, but when I played on the Super Nintendo, Super Mario World was probably the game I spent the most time with. I'm assuming most of us listening to the podcast have played Super Mario World at one point or another. For what it was, it was glorious. Colorful 2D graphics, vibrant stages, and just an overall crisp presentation. As far as I was concerned, graphics would never get much better than that, and they really didn't need to. Now, when I grabbed the game cartridge for Star Fox, I remember not being overly impressed with it. I had no idea what this game was at the time, and at that time, all I had to go off of was the label on the cartridge. I mean, the name sounded cool, Star Fox. It was a space game of sorts, and the ships on the label looked pretty awesome. Then my eyes fell onto the humanoid fox-looking thing over to the left-hand side of the label. I studied its face for a minute, and I probably shuddered a little. You know what Star Fox back in the day reminded me of? I'm talking the real-life iterations of Star Fox, like on the label. He reminded me of those life-sized Easter bunnies you see in your local mall. The kind your parents would take you to see. They had those faces that were anything but lovable. Empty, hollow eyes. Emotionless faces. That's what Star Fox looked like to me when I was looking at the cartridge label. So needless to say, my expectations for this game were rock bottom low. But it all changed when I took that leap. And my younger self was forever changed when I saw the opening cinematic play out of our dinky little television screen. Dark, foreboding music started to play over a scene that opens in space. Three spaceships speed into view from the top of the screen. Right away, I noticed they were in 3D. Holy shit, 3D! Was I watching a movie? Laser blast came in from off screen and one of the ships was hit. It soon explodes into a shower of flames and sparks go flying. I'm pretty sure my mouth was slowly falling open at this point. Now from the top of the screen, a large ship comes into view and smaller ships start to come off of it. Soon the screen is full of ships as a blue planet comes into view. And just as the screen almost becomes infested with ships, one of them starts to fly towards the screen, towards me. It opens fire and it's starting to shoot lasers at me. And right as it looks like it's about to crash through the TV, the music crescendos, cuts off, and the screen fades to black. Then boom, title screen. I couldn't hit the start button fast enough. I wanted to know what the hell this game was. The first thing that pops up is a screen where you can select your control scheme from four presets. Now what made this cool was the ship I assumed I'd be controlling was on the left-hand side of the screen and I could test the controls in real time. It was so cool. The controls themselves weren't too complicated, but it was a little more to keep track of than what I was used to when I was playing Super Mario World or a game similar to that. The directional buttons move the ship up, down, left, and right. Boost and brakes were assigned to a button, and they were pretty self-explanatory. The blaster caught my eye, and when I pressed the button, a laser would shoot out in front of the ship. 
the blaster is your primary pew-pew weapon, so check. Next, I tried out the Nova Bomb. Pressing the button launched a huge meteor-looking thing that sailed quite a ways before a huge explosion followed. I knew right away this was probably the big screen-clearing weapon, and I'm sure I wouldn't come across many of those, so I needed to be a little stingy, but keep them in reserve as needed. Last, I took note of the shoulder buttons. When I held the left one, the ship tilted on its side to the left. Same behavior when I tested the right shoulder button. If I double-tapped one of them, I did a barrel roll. <laughs> barrel roll! Fucking sweet! Which is what I would have said out loud if I had the balls to say that when I was nine. So when I was satisfied, I selected the default control scheme and I was met with either jumping into training or going right into the game. Now, confession time again, I've always been one of those weirdos who does the training or practice levels in most of the games I play, so I jumped into training. When the training level launches, I was in awe. The level takes place in the first area of the actual game, and is primarily a soothing color palette of blues and whites. The hum of the ship could be heard as the music started, and it was pretty obvious my first task was to fly the ship through some rings that were placed in front of me. It was the perfect way to get used to how the game controlled. I practiced my maneuvers and made my way through most of the rings. Sweet. After that, three more ships just like mine came onto screen in formation, and there was a wireframe spot carved out for, I assumed, me. I had to keep my ship in that wireframe and fly with my team. Awesome! I had a team! It was so cool. Then they started the maneuvers and didn't prompt me on where I needed to go. They would move left and i try to keep up, and when I moved left they were already moving right, and then they went up, and then I went up, and then they went down, and then I screwed that up, and then they threw in some barrel rolls, and yeah, screw it, I couldn't keep up at that point. Did anyone who played this section actually ever master that particular point of training? Because if you have, you have my respect, seriously, because that was a huge pain in the ass. At that point in the training, though, I did back out and I went right into the game. I figured I was ready to go. So, it was time to, I don't know, save the world? Rescue the hostages? I had no idea what I was getting into. Which I think now is a good time to segue into talking about what little story this game has. Now, like most games back in the day, you don't get much story from the game itself. To get the most of the story, you needed the instruction manual. Within it, we get the background of what is called the Lilatian Conflict. Lilatian, Lilala. Lilatian Conflict. On the planet Corneria, there was a renowned scientist known as Dr. Andros. While he was incredibly intelligent at a very young age, his experiments started to get out of hand and would eventually start to endanger the lives of the people on the planet. Soon, he was banished from Corneria and told never to return. Andros finds his way to the planet of Venom and starts to amass a military force because what else does a mad scientist do on a planet called Venom? Eventually, Andros decides to declare war on Corneria and sends his forces to the planet. This is the opening scene we saw when we first booted up the game. General Pepper, who is in command of the defense forces of Corneria, decides he wants to deploy a new experimental ship to lead the defense forces. 
a ship known as the R-Wing. The problem with this decision is that there are no pilots that know how to fly the R-Wing, so General Pepper makes a call out to the Star Fox team for help, which is a group of adventurers who are widely known in the Lilat system for their fantastic combat abilities. Fox McCloud and his teammates Falco, Slippy, and Peppy are tasked with hopping in four of the experimental R-Wings and clearing Andross's forces from Corneria, and then take the fight directly to Andross on Venom. The instruction booklet makes it a point to point out on several occasions that you are responsible for the safety of your teammates, and they need to be looked after so they can make it back safely. I thought this was going to add a pretty cool layer to the gameplay. You know, working with the team and all that. We'll get into that experience a little later. The instruction booklet for this game is full of all sorts of other cool info too. It has background on each of your teammates, info on some of the enemies you're going to fight, and more. This was one of those instruction booklets I would carry with me to school or on car trips, and I'd read it over and over again. It was perfect for those extended bathroom breaks too. Remember when we didn't have cell phones, and you were on the shitter, and you sat there, and you either contemplated life, or you read the labels on the shampoo bottles that you could reach while you were on the toilet? Well, I had the Star Fox instructional manual to supplement all of that. So the stage is set, and we now know why we're doing what we're doing. So how did the game itself play? Well, back when I was a kid, this game was silky smooth and nary an issue to be had. I mean... When you have just a couple of games to play, you play the shit out of the couple games you did have, flaws and all. You tend to overlook a lot of things, and, well, as an adult playing this game, some of the smooth edges are just a little rougher, and some of the polish is just a little duller than I remember. Overall, I still love this game, even today, but let's get into the nitty-gritty of the gameplay and what you're going to experience when you take flight in your R-Wing. The structure of the game is set up simple enough. When you first start, you're given a choice of three routes on the map to take which all lead you to your goal, Planet Venom, where Andross awaits. The route up the middle is the level 1 route, which is the easiest. The top route is the level 2 route, which is a little bit harder, and then the bottom route is the level 3 one, which is the hardest. Even though you start off on Corneria and end with Venom, the stages in between are different on every route. I didn't really appreciate it at the time, but that gives the game some pretty decent replay value. When I was a kid, I was never able to beat the game on level 2 or level 3. I tried my best at level 2, but I could never make it to Venom. And if I was able to somehow make it past the second stage on level 3, I was impressed with myself. So whenever I played Star Fox, I'd stick to level 1 and I just played the snot out of that. The levels weren't all that hard, but I had a ton of fun blasting enemies and flying my R-Wing around. When I replayed the game last week, I did finally finish the game on level 2, so that was an accomplishment. Level 3 still kicked my ass a little bit, and I gave up after a little bit, but I'm definitely going to go back and try to give it another run. It can be done. I can do it now. I'm older, and I'm wiser. I think. What I appreciate most about Star Fox, I think, is that each stage is truly unique. I mean, they're similar in that you have to fight through enemies to get to the end, but the enemy types vary pretty well, the stages themselves feel unique, and every stage has its own background music. Out of all these things, it has to be the music that kept me coming back for more. The music in this game is near perfect. 
It fits the space setting exceptionally well, and it's really catchy. It's one of the soundtracks I still listen to today. It really helped immerse me in the overall experience. Really, I felt like the fighter pilot I dreamed of being one day. Yeah, the music is that good. Putting the music aside for a moment, let's dissect an actual level. It's hard to describe what the enemies look like now that I'm thinking about it. They don't always look like your typical spaceships or anything, or at least they didn't to me because of the polygons that were used. Sometimes they looked more like bugs or other animal life. Either way, they looked like they belonged, and depending on what you're fighting, they'll either go down easy or take a decent amount of damage before they die. Most of them use different types of weapons to take you and your Star Fox buddies out. Some will shoot lasers at you that don't do too much damage. Others will shoot plasma ball-looking things at you for substantially more impact. Other enemies may launch missiles and other fun stuff at you. I don't remember if it's specifically spelled out in the instruction manual, but you can deflect laser blasts and energy balls away from you if you initiate a barrel roll at just the right time. So not only does the barrel roll look cool as hell, it could be a huge lifesaver if you can't dodge out of the way fast enough. All in all, I don't think the enemies you fight are really the biggest threat to your R-Wing though. More than anything, you'll find yourself getting hit and eventually killed by the tons of space junk floating around in some of the levels. Some stages weren't all that bad. The asteroid field of the level 1 route wasn't too big a deal. I was able to shoot or dodge most of the rocks that were in my way. On the level 2 path, there were instances where some stages would have long columns of objects float on screen towards you, or be forcefully thrust towards you, or just spin around in such a way that you had to use your boosters to fly past them when the timing was just right. It was pretty hard for me when I was little, and it was still a little hard for me today. What made it hard, though, was the somewhat unresponsiveness of the controls at times. I feel like I'm jumping all over the place this time, but hang in there with me a little bit. So when I say the controls were unresponsive, that doesn't mean all the time, and it's not a control issue, really. It's actually a frame rate issue, or at least that's what seemed to hold me back at times. Now, I can't really remember how this game performed on the actual Super Nintendo hardware since I recently replayed it on my Super Nintendo Classic. But when a lot was happening on the screen, the frame rate dropped considerably, and the game started to run pretty slow. There would be times where things would slow down and the game seemed to stop getting signals from my controller. Like, I would be hitting the button for my blaster, but my blaster would stop firing altogether. I could still maneuver my R-Wing, but I'd lose the ability to shoot while everything was getting slowed down by the bad frame rate. So when I was in a stage where there were a ton of floating obstacles and objects in my way, the game would slow down to a near crawl. Now you'd think that would be beneficial when I'm trying to dodge things, but the controls were even more sluggish during these times. I'd collide into so many objects this way, and when I'd hit something, I'd get thrown into something else and had a hard time recovering. If I ever made it out of the area alive, I would be near death. The thing is though, I started to get used to this slowdown when things got a little hectic. I can honestly say I was having enough fun that I was able to overlook the issue. Sure, it was annoying, but the slowdowns usually didn't last all that long. 
The times I would get frustrated, though, are when I'd try to fire my blasters and nothing would happen, or when I was trying to double-tap a shoulder button in order to execute a barrel roll, and all my R-Wing was doing was twitching in place. All the while, the lasers and stuff I was trying to deflect smashed into my ship, causing damage. It was never enough to make me rage or anything like that, just roll my eyes incessantly. It's like when your kid doesn't put their cereal bowl in the dishwasher when they're done with it and you've asked them to do it hundreds of times up to that point. It's not going to make me fly off the handle or anything, but... Ah, damn, is it annoying. <laughs> now that we're done with that rant, let's get back to some more of the gameplay. I mentioned back when talking about the controls that your R-Wing has the ability to speed up and slow down in short bursts. Even though I just got done dunking on this game for all the frame rate dips that I experienced, there are some stages that move pretty damn fast, and if you aren't hitting your brakes every now and again, you're going to consistently run into one object or another. The Meteor stage on the level 1 route comes to mind, and also the level 2 Venom level. The incredible speed was almost baffling. You're zooming right along and the controls are really responsive and tight. Using your retros are the only way to take a breath and maneuver safely. This is an experience I would have loved to have had in more of the stages. Speaking of running into things, that reminds me of a couple other nifty little game features I wanted to touch on. As you're flying through the stages, you'll come across some power-ups that you can collect. Yellow rings sometimes come out of defeated enemies, and if you fly through them, you'll recharge some of your health, so you should definitely be on the lookout for those. There are also silver rings that will appear that will restore some health as well, but if you fly through those, they also act as a sort of checkpoint. So if you die, you'll restart at that point instead of having to restart all the way back at the beginning of the level. More enticing a power-up, though, are the Twin Blasters. These power-ups may be scattered about, or they'll spawn if you kill this red, white, and blue-looking spacecraft. It's pretty obvious when you see one. They do what their name implies. They'll allow you to shoot two laser blasters at once. When you have the twin blasters, the lasers will actually come out of your wings instead of your R-Wing's nose. You'll immediately see your destructive power double, so you'll want to do everything you can to get a hold of one of these. Even better, if you can collect a second one, your twin blasters will upgrade and you'll shoot these plasma balls out of each wings instead. With these, there won't be much to stand in your way, so once you do get them, it's... Well, that's kind of like getting the spread shot in Contra. You do not want to die and lose these bad boys. Even if they sound like you're pumping a bunch of tennis balls out of a tube. But really, that's my only gripe with these upgraded blasters. Just sounds like flop, flop, flop over and over again instead of your normal pew pew pew. Hopefully there's at least one of you going, ah yeah, I know what you're talking about. Now that reminds me of one more game feature that I always thought was really cool. If the wings on your R-Wing take too much damage, they'll actually be blown off. If that happens, you'll hear a warning sound over the radio that your wing was damaged. In place of your once-long wing, you'll instead see this red little stump where your wing used to be. And it may have just been me, but I felt like my R-Wing would drift a little in the direction of your good wing, like you're heavy to one side. Worse than that, if you take a hit on your little wing nub, you'll suffer a pretty substantial amount of damage. And what's even worse than that, if you had a Twin Blaster upgrade, you can kiss that goodbye as well. It was a dumb little feature, really, but it added a layer of excitement, though. 
kind of like when Iceman takes a hit in Top Gun and his engine is smoking, but he stays in the fight and he keeps going anyway. I felt like a true ace if I was able to beat a level with a busted R-Wing. To repair your wing, you just need to find another twin blaster upgrade. When you grab it, a wing gyro, as the instruction manual calls it, will fly on screen, and when you line up with it, it'll repair your wings back to normal. I think you'll only have your normal nose blaster, but you'll be whole again. <laughs> that reminds me of a dumb memory. So as I mentioned in the beginning somewhere, I think, I was never really good enough at the game when I was little to be able to complete the second or third levels. I never wanted to get that good though, so I just played level 1 over and over again. Sometimes when I did want a little bit more of a challenge though, I would purposely break my wings off. Yep, I just held a shoulder button on the controller so my R-Wing was on its side, and I would drive the wings into the ground until they busted off. Then I'd complete the level without dying. I know, I was super hardcore. So as we wind down, there's a couple more things I wanted to bring up about Star Fox. Let me chat about the bosses for a little bit. Every stage has a boss that you have to defeat in order to move on to the next stage, and all of them were pretty unique for the most part. When you first fight one, it's sort of like a mini puzzle because you have to figure out how to fight them. Many of them have an attack pattern you can figure out if you pay enough attention, but that was only part of it. You also have to figure out how to deal damage to each boss. Now, most of the bosses were kind of obvious in that sense. Just look for the flashing part and shoot it repeatedly. Some bosses didn't make it that simple though, and that was just the fun of it, trying to figure out how to damage these guys. It gave each encounter its own personality and experience. The level 1 boss at the end of the Corneria level is a great starting point. It's an attack carrier that opens up its doors to launch fighters at you and the occasional missile. When the doors are open, the inside of the carrier is flashing. You'll find out pretty quickly that hitting the carrier anywhere else isn't going to do any damage. So what have video games been teaching us all of our lives? Shoot the flashy thingy. Eventually, parts fall off the carrier and it changes tactics. The remainder of the carrier starts to charge you and fire plasma balls in your direction. When it gets close, it turns its back on you and resets for another attack run. All you have to do here is light it up with blaster fire and you're good. Easy peasy. There were a few other bosses I really liked too. The Dancing Insector on the level 1 meteor stage was an absolute cool one in my eyes. It was like a huge walking spider, its long metallic legs clinking and clanking on the ground. You had to shoot it enough for the legs to fall out from under it. Then it would turn itself into a flying disc of sorts, and its legs would act like blades on a circular saw, if I'm even describing this right. It would then fly towards you, and you'd have to move either above it or below it to dodge it. Eventually you'd do enough damage and the legs would start to fall off, and you'd take it down, but I love the way that this boss was presented. I'm really going to date myself with this example, but... Who listening to the show has ever watched the old Johnny Quest cartoons, that old Hanna-Barbera cartoon? Probably just me, I assume. <laughs> the reason I bring it up is in one of the episodes, there was this robot spider that was wreaking havoc on this military base where Johnny Quest and his family were at the time, and the dancing insector from Star Fox always made me think of that one episode. God, I feel older and older every episode we do. On the level 2 path, there was this boss called the Plasma Hydra. 
I can't remember specifically what stage it was on, but I thought that boss was pretty unique too. It would do these somersaults in place, and it had these long arms that would try to whip you, but the ends of those arms would shoot out plasma balls, and you had to shoot your blasters at the end of those arms to make the arms blow off so you could attack the middle of this creature. It was unique, and I love how the boss itself was animated. When it spun around and whipped back and forth, it really pushed that graphics chip to the limit. The game didn't slow down too much during this battle either, so that was definitely a plus. It was a decent challenge, and I remember dying a few times before I actually figured this one out and got the best of it. And lastly, I really liked the spinning core that was at the end of the Armada stage during the level 1 route. It wasn't a hard boss encounter, but it took place inside a rotating cylinder, and you had to shoot targets on the walls as the walls spun around you. Once you did that, you exposed the core of the ship you were inside, and once you destroyed that, the ship started to explode and you made a pretty awesome looking retreat as everything blew up all around you. I always had fun with that one, and it's another boss encounter that really showcased the game's awesome graphics. Now with that, I have one more thing I wanted to talk about before we wrap up Star Fox today. What made this game so unique for me when I was little was the idea that it wasn't just me out there trying to save the world. I was part of a team, and I was a leader of that team. When we all flew out of that launch tube in the beginning, I always felt a small swell of pride when I took control of my R-Wing and everyone was checking in over the radio. Soon the first waves of enemies descended upon us and the battle was on. It was glorious. Every now and again, your teammates might find themselves in a tough spot, though. Early on in the first level, I think it was Slippy, who jumps on the radio and lets you know that he has an enemy on his tail. Right at that moment, Slippy's ship comes into view and he has a bogey on his tail. Of course, you shoot it down and he's extremely grateful. Awesome! Not only did you save your teammate, you felt like a badass while you were doing it. Back then, that was just another thing that brought me back to Top Gun when Maverick was trying to help Cougar in the beginning of the film. The only difference is I didn't invert myself while keeping up foreign relations. So all told, I thought it was a pretty cool feature to be able to save your friends who were in trouble. After all, the instruction manual did say it was our responsibility to ensure that they came home safely, right? But then, it kept happening. I got a bogey on my six, Falco would cry. Ah, I need your help, Slippy would say. Get this guy off of me, Fox! Peppy would scream. It started to get really repetitive, and the pre-scripted events always seemed to happen when I was busy trying to keep myself alive. If you weren't skilled enough to get the enemy off your teammate right away, they would fly all over the screen until you shot down the enemy, or they did just enough damage to your buddy that they got bored and gave up. Alright, I should probably back up just a little bit. So, each of your teammates has a shield meter. If they take enough hits, and I think it was about four, they'd actually get shot down and not come back for the remainder of the game. For what that was, it was an interesting mechanic. Gameplay-wise, I think all it did was prevent you from getting the best scores. You obviously didn't want your friends to perish, but after I started to put tons of time into the game, even my younger self started to ask, why are they even here? They didn't do anything. It's not like they're fighting alongside me and blasting enemies out of the sky. No, no, I take that back. 
Sometimes they will burst on screen and say something like, Hey, this one's mine! and start to chase after a few of the enemies. But those are also pre-scripted segments designed to heighten the level of experience. They aren't battling the same enemies that you are. The enemies they shoot at are specifically laid out for them. Now, I mean, it's kind of cool. It's a way for them to get involved, and it feels like they've been with you the whole time. But God help you if you shoot down one that they're trying to shoot down before they get to them. They will get all sorts of pissed off and yell at you. Hey, he was mine. Don't be so greedy. Look, Slippy, while you're taking your time trying to contribute, these things are still shooting at me, so if you're gonna help, fucking help. Gosh, shit, man. (laughs) So the teammate experience was cool on paper, but really, you're just a glorified babysitter. Seriously, having teammates in this game was like having three children. They mostly crawl around your house, and they're trying to stick their fingers in electrical sockets. You have to constantly help them when they cry out, and if they want to do something they want to do, you have to let them do it, or they'll bitch and moan just like real kids. So what do you do? Well, maybe you do what I did. Maybe you let them get shot down. Maybe you just focus on you. I mean, we're all giving pieces of ourselves to others every day, am I right? Maybe you just hang on to those pieces today. Now I'll admit, I didn't always do this. It's not that big a deal to work with your team in this game. I am exaggerating a bit. But there were times I just let them die. No more radio chirps. No more having to save them. No more accidentally shooting down enemies they wanted to shoot down. Just peace and quiet. (laughs) The funniest part was at the end of each stage, now that I think about it, The funniest part was at the end of each stage when this happened. Fox would radio out and ask for all wings to report in. And I liked it when he did that, and he was met with nothing but static. Please tell me somebody listening to this did the same thing, because if you don't, then I'm probably more of a bad guy than I thought I was. (sighs) Alright, on that note, I think it's time to wrap it up. All jokes of letting your teammates die a horrific death aside, Don't let that last part sully the game as a whole. I probably should have put that in the beginning of the podcast and ended on a lighter note, so lesson for next time. (laughs) It's just a small blemish on what is otherwise a great Super Nintendo game. I'm more than likely going to talk about it on another episode down the road, but Star Fox 64, for the Nintendo 64, I felt improved on a lot of what this game was trying to be back in the day. Are they both fantastic, must-play video games? I argue no, but I still think they're worth checking out if for no other reason than to just see what the fuss is all about. My nostalgic ties for this game go deep, so I'll always be an advocate for Star Fox despite all of its flaws. There's plenty of on-rail shooters out there that I'm sure have done it better, but I'm a believer that very few of them, if any, have the character and charm of Star Fox. It will always feel exciting to me, and it perfectly scratches the itch I get to hop into an aircraft and push the throttle while I barrel roll into perfect firing position on the enemy. Some would say I have a need. Some may say that that need is for speed. To that I respond with, Tower, this is Fox McCloud requesting a flyby.
And with that cringeworthy Top Gun reference behind us, that's another one in the books. This has been episode 6 of the Retro Wildlands, and if you've made it this far, thank you so, so much for tuning in today. I really appreciate it. I hope my ramblings either spark some old nostalgic memories in your life, got you curious about a game maybe you've never tried before, or just served as a little bit of entertainment. If you like the show and want to show it and myself some support, please consider leaving a good review on your podcasting service of choice. Better yet, spread the word to your friends, gaming buddies, co-workers, or even some of the poor saps in line with you next time you're at the DMV to renew your license plate. You can also reach out to me directly on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. If you follow the show, we'll follow you back. I'll like the pictures you post of your Starbucks coffee and the memes you share, and we could be internet buddies. Plus, if you want to keep up with what I'm playing or what episodes may be coming down the pipeline, or see some adorable pictures of my puppies, that is the best way to get the inside scoop. So, what is coming up next? Some of the members of our Facebook page made some pretty good suggestions of some games I need to consider for the show, so I'm sifting through some of those. Next week, however, we're going to head back to the Sony PlayStation. There are a couple more games that really stand out in my memories, especially because I played them alongside my stepdad. When I got home from school those nights, all I wanted to do was wolf down my dinner so he and I could work on the game we were working on at the time. If you listened to our first episode on Resident Evil here in the Retro Wildlands, I talked about how he was very opposed to letting me even watch him play that game because of how mature and gory it was supposed to be. The next time he and I played together, it was another game I'm surprised he let me play, but at that point, we were a team. And without the internet back then, this game needed all hands on deck when it came to the puzzles specifically. So tune in next week when I recant some experiences and memories when my stepfather and I descended into the fog-filled town known as Silent Hill. Until then, my friends, my name is Nomad, and you can find me roaming the retro wildlands. 